good morning. 25-year anniversary celebration. I don't know how long they've been married total. Is he still in here? He's not going to listen to this twice. I'm sure he's out of here. Uh, he'll be back later. Ashley and I have been married for 10 years. We'll be married 10 years in August. I recently read Red Skelton's secret to a successful marriage. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, uh, twice a week. He said, my wife and I go out to a nice dinner. We talk and, you know, enjoy being out, good food, fellowship. He says, she goes Tuesdays, I go Fridays. <laughs> the late, great Red Skelton. Something else I was watching on TV the other day, and I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting series. It, it's been around for a little while. It's a, it talks about uh, the history of uh, one of the companies in World War II, Easy Company, and different things that they did in the battle in Europe. There's a line in one of these episodes in this series. One of the officers is talking to a, uh, a private, and he's, he's scared, he's terrified uh, at the prospects of what he's about to encounter in Europe and in the battles to come. And uh, this young man tells the officer about how scared he is and how there are numerous times that he doesn't want to fight, he doesn't want to engage. And the officer tells him, he says, I know why you're scared. I know why you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I know why you are not carrying out the responsibilities you're supposed to carry out. And the young man asks him why. He says, because you think that you're still alive. What you've got to understand is you're already dead. And only then will you be able to perform the way a soldier should. Now, I don't know if all of that's true. I don't necessarily ascribe to that when it comes to living our lives. But there is a truth to that. There is certainly a truth to that when it comes to accepting the justification of Jesus Christ. The very end of our lesson today, we're going to see Paul's strength. Paul's strength is the fact that he already knows that he's dead. He's already died. He's already gone. And because he embraces the fact that he's already dead, he is able to live a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Very freeing thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you, Father, that you continue to open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. We thank you, Father, that you, you allow us to embrace forgiveness, that you allow us to embrace this undeserved favor that you have for your children. We ask, Father, that you help open our eyes, continue to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts today <clears throat> as we look at your letter, so many of these letters that you have written, such great wisdom that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, we're going through our, uh, God's letter to the Galatians, and last week we, we just kind of set the stage. Paul was talking about a little bit of his background. He was really trying to drive home the point that this is not some made-up gospel, all right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal, eternal from the very beginning until the very end. And, and he says, look, I, I'm not trying to please anybody. I'm not trying to please people that sent me. I'm not even trying to please you. He says, I'm trying to lay out some truth to the Galatian church. In fact, he goes so far as to say, if I was in the business of pleasing people, he said, I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus. Paul's not here to please you. Jesus isn't here to please you. Jesus is here to serve. Paul's here to serve you, but not to please. God is here to give you absolute truth. Galatians, we will get into chapter 2 a little bit today. Paul continues to tell his story. 17 years, 17 years after Paul is confronted by Christ on the road to Damascus. 17 years after he begins his training and then his ministry. 17 years after teaching justification through faith. It's after 17 years that Paul goes to Jerusalem to see the church elders and talk about theology or talk about gospel doctrine. He's been there once or twice in these 17 years, but never to talk about doctrine. He's, uh, he's introducing himself one time, another time he's dropping off some, some money, some money he's collected for the poor. But here, after 17 years of preaching, is the first time that Paul actually goes to Jerusalem to sit down with James and John and Peter and other elders that are there in the church and actually talk about the doctrine of the gospel. You see, up until this point, he's taught one thing, justification through faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop. In fact, he, he is so sure of this that last week we found out, he said, if anybody teaches you something different, let them be eternally condemned. And so now he goes to Jerusalem to talk about this apostolic authority. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then after 14 years, so this is 17 years after his conversion, I went again to Jerusalem. He's been there once or twice before, but this time he talks about theology. This time he's talking about the doctrine that is taught. This time I went with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. Again, he's setting the stage for the Galatians. He'll get into his argument here in a moment. Barnabas, remember, is Paul's ministry partner, and Titus is Paul's student. Now, Paul had a number of ministry partners, and he had a number of students. But this is two of them. Barnabas was a partner. Titus was a student. Titus was being raised up. He was being taught. Barnabas was engaged in the same work that Paul was. And I love Barnabas. He's a, great, he's a fantastic character in Scripture because Barnabas was not his name. <laughs> and they won't even, that's what we think of. We think of Barnabas, Paul's partner Barnabas, or maybe Paul's partner Silas. Barnabas was not his name. His name was Joseph. He's called Barnabas because the apostles came up with a nickname for him. And that's how we know him. The apostles started calling him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. That's what he did. He encouraged. 
He lifted up. He built up. In fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He says, encouragement is a specific gift given to Christians by the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's his specific role. That's his purpose, to be an encourager. That might be your role as you look at all the wonderful things that the Holy Spirit opens up to you in your life. Your role might be an encourager. Sometimes we think gifts of the Holy Spirit must be teaching or or, or preaching or evangelism or singing songs, and all of those things are, and that's true. But there's also specific callings by the Holy Spirit to be an encourager. You can find that in Acts chapter 4. talks about that. Paul needed Barnabas. Paul needed Barnabas. He needed Barnabas in his ministry. Church, if you want to live out your justification, okay, if you want to live out your righteous standing, if you want to live up to this righteousness that is given, you need a Barnabas. In your life, you need a Barnabas. You need more than one Barnabas. You need Barnabases or Barnabai. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. And why do you need a Barnabas? Specifically, if you're going to embrace forgiveness, if you're going to realize that you are justified only by what Jesus did for you, and now you get an opportunity to live out righteousness, why do you need an encourager? Because church, you are, look around, I mean, not in this room, but look around in our culture. You are surrounded by the opposite of Barnabas. Every place you go, everything you hear, everything that comes into your life, your mind, your home, is the opposite of Barnabas. What is Satan called? Satan is called the accuser or the disruptor. Well, it's a big difference between the accuser and the encourager. What's our job? Our job is to trust and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, justified us, and gave us the standing of righteousness that we have the opportunity to live out. Now, if you've got somebody coming at you day after day and all you listen to is the accuser, how horrible you are, how rotten you are, how destructive you are, how worthless you are, It makes it very, very difficult to believe that Jesus loves me and He's forgiven me as I am. But if we give up on that, we give up on the gospel. You need a Barnabas. You need multiple Barnabases. And I've got Barnabases in my life. I've got Barnabases in my life that don't even know there are Barnabas in my life. Sometimes I'll call them up. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll send an email. Sometimes it's a quick discussion. Sometimes it's, a, it's, it's this or that. Encouragement. Encouragement. That you are worth saving. That Jesus died for you. That he saves you. We cannot go day after day listening to the accuser telling us how bad we are. Because then we start falling into this trap that we must earn our forgiveness that we must earn the love of Christ. Barnabas strengthened Paul, but Barnabas was not Paul's strength. Barnabas strengthened Paul, just as you need a Barnabas, but he was not Paul's strength. Barnabas wasn't perfect. We're going to see that here in just a minute in chapter 2. We find Paul's strength at the very end. Paul also had Titus, and Titus was the student 
Again, there was multiple students that Paul had. But Titus would be very, very influential in teaching others about Christ, establishing churches, particularly in Crete. And you have a Titus in your life. And you've got a Titus in your life maybe without even knowing you have a Titus in your life. You might not be a Sunday school teacher. You might not, eat, might not even have children. But you've still got a Titus in your life. In fact, as I was reading this and thinking about this this week, I thought back to my, my time and my history growing up and, and the different things I saw and I heard and I listened to in this very church. And how many times I would listen or see or watch or, or absorb some of the things that happened from, from parents or from teachers or from just, just general people in the church and how it affected my life. In fact, there's things that I can remember that I even think about. I can see them in my head from people saying different things, some wonderful, some bad. And, and, and all of this is influencing me to either believe in Jesus or give up on Jesus. You've got a Titus in your life, church. Your Titus might be a co-worker. Your Titus might be your children. It might be, uh, you know, kids here at the church. They see, boy, they see everything, don't they? They see everything, they listen to everything, they remember everything, they hear everything. I hate it when Sam calls me out. You ever have that? You ever have your kids call you out on something? And you're speechless. You got to invent something to say just so you remain in charge. Can't tell you how many times it's happened. Not supposed to outsmart you. You've got a Titus in your life and it makes a huge difference in their lives to those around you. Verse 2, Paul says, I went in response to a revelation. Now, that revelation is hard to understand. You don't see a whole lot about that. That's in Acts chapter 13. You can read that. It really doesn't go into great detail about this revelation. It's a direction from the Holy Spirit prompting Paul to go to Jerusalem to meet with the rest of the elders. And again, there's not a whole lot of detail. there. That's Acts chapter 13. You can read through that. Anyway, he says, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. And what is that gospel? Justification by our faith in Jesus Christ. This meeting, this special meeting, uh, some people call it the Jerusalem Council, that's found in Acts chapter 15. I like what Paul says here, though. He says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Now, you've got to understand Paul's absolute dedication to the truth. The truth is that we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, period. And that's what Paul was teaching, period. And so Paul goes to Jerusalem to meet with the church elders to make sure that he wasn't running his race in vain. Paul wasn't going to meet with James and Peter and John and all of these elders. He was not going to Jerusalem to make sure Paul was teaching the right thing. No, you got to love Paul. Paul was going to meet with the disciples that sat at the feet of Jesus to make sure they were teaching the right thing. I love that about Paul. He is absolutely dedicated to truth, and he doesn't waver at any point, at any time. Not like the Galatian church. The Galatian church is tossed back and forth on the waves. I'm either going to believe in the forgiveness of Jesus, or I'm going to work for it, or I'm going to think I'm going to lose my salvation, or I'm going to give up on Jesus, or I'm going to turn back around to Jesus. Not Paul. 
He says, I've seen the face of Christ. And you are forgiven and you are justified by your trust in who he is and what he is. Paul was making sure they were teaching correctly. He also wanted to make sure the church was not influenced by those who promoted salvation by works. And and, and by the way, we're going to go through a lot of things here today. Uh, Paul's going to reference the works of the law. Okay, the works of the law, the works of the Old Testament law. Now, I don't know anybody personally that upholds the Old Testament law in every area of their life. And I don't think that it's incorrect for us in our lesson today, anytime you see the works of the law, to just leave of the law out of there. Okay? Just, just, just leave that out for a moment. Okay? Just the works. Works. Works to earn salvation. Verse 3 says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this was really the issue, or part of it. Titus hadn't converted to Judaism before accepting Christ. Others were not keeping the law before or while they accepted Christ. Others were not bowing to this false idea that you had to eat this food, or hold these festivals, or wear these clothes, or sing these songs, or make these sacrifices. They they weren't bowing to this false idea that if you don't do or if you don't correct yourself first, then you cannot accept the forgiveness and life of Jesus Christ. I got news for you, church. The, The salvation of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus is not justification by committee, okay? He didn't sit down with me and he didn't sit down with you and ask you, okay, how do you want to work through this? How do you want to accomplish this? How do you want to figure this out? No, he said, look, I'm going to justify my creation. I'm going to make my creation righteous. He did that before you were even born. We get the opportunity to accept it or deny it. It is not salvation by committee. Again, the false idea. And and as we go through this, I hope you're one of the ones in here that gets bored. Um, Might be all of you. Um, and thanks to yourself, I know this already. I know this already. I hope that's the truth. I hope every time we go over justification by faith in Jesus Christ, you've gotten to this place in your life where you say, I know this already. Because there's a lot that still worry about this. There's a lot that still struggle with this. I have conversations with people that still struggle with this. They think if they're not good enough, then they will not be justified. If I'm not good enough, I won't be justified. Let me put your mind at ease, okay? Let's just get one thing just out of the way for the rest of your life, okay? You ready? You're not good enough. Okay? You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough. You're better than I am. I'm not good enough. You know what you are? You're loved enough. You're loved enough. And I think this is where we struggle with accepting the forgiveness of Christ because we don't love the way Jesus loves. We don't don't give all uh, all of ourselves to another the way Jesus did. You're not good enough to be saved. You're loved enough to be saved. That's the difference. Look at how Paul describes this 
verses 4 and 5. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ, that we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves again. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. First of all, Paul describes people who think this way, this earning your salvation as false believers, false believers. If I don't do enough, then I won't be saved. Paul says, that's not even someone who believes in Jesus. But what about doing good? Haven't we talked about doing good? Doesn't the church always talk about doing good? Haven't we talked about pursuing the character of Christ? Haven't we talked about pursuing righteousness, living out righteousness? Yes, we're going to get there. Paul's going to get there. You got to hang on. You got to read the whole letter. Paul's laying out his argument first. He's addressing the problem first. Secondly, they wanted to take away the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about uh, uh, physical freedom or political freedom or anything like that. Trust me, you ought to live under the thumb of the Romans. Paul's not talking about that type of freedom. He's talking about real freedom. He's talking about eternal freedom. He's talking about freedom that can't be taken away, freedom to live, freedom to trust. Here's what he's talking about, freedom to have a life without fear. I don't know if you've had these conversations. I have. Someone in their last moments or what they think are their last moments, terrified, terrified. Paul says that's not how you were called to live. You were called to live as free men and women. What do you think Jesus means when he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You see, there's so many that think Jesus is a tyrant, and I've got to earn his good graces. He says, look, you're going to find rest for your souls. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My burden's light. Guys, church, earning your salvation is not a light burden. Being afraid that tomorrow you're going to somehow screw up and lose your salvation, that's not a light burden. On your deathbed, scared to death, that's not a light burden. A light burden is knowing that you're loved and forgiven by who Jesus is, not who you are. A light burden is knowing that your salvation can never be taken away. Even you can't screw it up, right? A light burden is knowing that, yes, I'm not good enough, but I am loved enough. Just as we attempt and we try to love others. I have spoken with people that are gripped with fear. I'm afraid I haven't done enough. I've heard this at least twice. Scared, crying. I'm afraid I haven't done enough. I said the same thing to her that I'll say to you. You haven't done anything. You haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. Jesus did everything. We get institutionalized. Institutionalized. 
institutionalized is being a part of a system for so long that when you're set free, you don't know what to do. In fact, when you're set free, sometimes you want to go back to the institution. It's human nature to take what's familiar over what is better. And what's familiar to the human being? Well, you've got to earn it. And you've got to hold on to it. You've got to live in fear that you're going to lose it. That's normal for humans. Paul says there's a better way to trust Jesus. So after talking to the church elders, that is John and Peter, other elders, but these are three of them that are there, James, that is Jesus' earthly brother, not James, the the brother of John. Paul tells the Galatians, they added nothing to my message. You find that in verse 6. They added nothing to my message. Paul wanted to keep preaching the very thing that we've been learning, justification by grace through faith. And it's interesting, he said, they did tell me, just make sure you remember the poor. And this is our first example that Paul has in this letter, our first example of the result of our faith in Christ, not the cause of our, faith, our, our salvation, but the result of our faith in Christ, that is charity. John says the same thing in 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how in the world can the love of God be in that person anyway? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, going back to previous thought, though we may understand justification by faith today, it's a gift that Jesus gives us. We must not revert. We must not go backwards. We must not rebuild what we have destroyed. We have destroyed a false doctrine. We must not rebuild it. We, Paul, Christ, have destroyed the false doctrine of salvation by works. And if we are going to be a new creation, this is what God's interested in. He's not interested in the old creation. We are, for some strange reason. God's not interested in the old creation. He's interested in the new creation. He's not interested in the Old Testament law, us making sure we walk the line. He's not interested in salvation by works. He's not interested in the sinful human being. He's interested in the new creation. And that's all that Galatians talks about. It lays out what this new creation is and what it looks like. If we're a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new is here. Even Peter falls into this temptation of rebuilding this false doctrine. Look at verse 11 through 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, same guy. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Even Peter falls back into this this mentality of what is familiar instead of what is better. For before certain men men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. That is, before certain men traveled up from Jerusalem to Antioch and began teaching a false doctrine, Peter used to hang out with the Gentiles. He used to spend time with them, used to fellowship with them, used to live with them, used to do what they do, uh, just enjoyed life together, the Gentiles. Oh, no, 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 no. When these people came up from the church, when these false believers came up from the church from Antioch and began teaching, Peter began to separate himself from the Gentiles. And why? Because they're not living out the works. They're not being saved by the works of the law. Paul gets wind of this, and he calls Peter out. He says, what in the world are you doing? 
He said, you were fellowshipping, you were teaching this salvation, this justification by grace. What are you doing now? He began to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That is, these, these Jewish men and women that came up from Jerusalem. Verse 13, the other Jews joined, him, joined in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So these men that came from James, that is, came from the church in Jerusalem up to Antioch, the church elders were lying. They were lying, plain and simple. They were deceiving. You've got to live out the works. You've got to earn your right to be saved. And everybody in the whole church began to fall away because of this. Notice how a little yeast works through the whole batch. Notice how quickly Peter, Barnabas, even they started giving up on the forgiveness of Christ. Notice how quickly and easily we can give up on the gospel message. Church, don't spend time with counterfeit doctrine, okay? I, I tell you, I hear, all, I hear all the time about people quoting this or quoting that from some preacher somewhere. And every time I think, you know, you and I need to sit down because you need to criticize this a little deeper. You need to be careful of what comes into your mind. Because a little bit of yeast can run through the entire church, can run through your entire home. Just because somebody claims to be a teacher or a preacher, or in Peter's case, even an apostle of Christ, that doesn't mean we entertain the teaching without serious criticism. Church, the same is true this morning. Don't just take my word for it. Get into Scripture. Read, study, ask questions. I remember skydiving when I was younger and... I was waiting uh, to, to go up, and I noticed two other guys, and they were, they were packing their chutes. They were putting everything together. They're going to go up. They're going to jump. And uh, one of them was my instructor. So I was, I was kind of watching, you know. I didn't know anything about it, but I was still watching. But it was interesting. He was packing the parachute, and another guy, he would say, okay, I'm ready to do this. So another guy would come over, and he would watch him back in parachute. He didn't say anything, didn't do anything. He was just watching, watching everything that he did. He got done. Then the first guy went over and he packed his parachute. The second guy came over and he watched him as he packed his. What were they doing? They were checking each other's work, weren't they? Making sure. Why were they doing this? Because their lives depended on it. Don't play around with counterfeit doctrine. You need to check it. You need to understand that it's salvation by grace or salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to check my work as well, or else everybody can be led astray. Peter is led astray. Barnabas is led astray. And Paul confronts Peter and asks why in the world he's forcing people to live under bondage to the law just because these other guys said he should. Paul says to him, hey, Peter, you live as a free person. You find this in verse 14. You live as a free person justified by what Christ did for you. Why are you treating others as though they must earn it? Boy, that's a message for us, isn't it? Those who have not accepted Christ, those who are still struggling with the horrors of this world and this life, those who are still living in fear, sometimes we are tempted to treat them, see them as inferior. Sometimes we think they need to put in their time and then Jesus can save them. They need to put in their time and then Jesus can love them the way he loves you. That's what Peter's doing here. Saying, look, you've got to put in the works. You've got to put in your time. Paul says he was condemned for this, found guilty for this way of thinking. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 20, uh, 15 through 16, 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. There's the message. So we too, Paul says, you and me, Peter, we too put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Remember, we can take the law out of here for a second. Not by the works, because by the works, no one will be justified. We know very well, he says, we're not set right with God by rule-keeping. Gene Peterson puts it this way. And we're not set right by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. The root of sinfulness is man's heart, not his actions. What do we think Jesus was trying to say on the Sermon on the Mount? The heart's the issue, not the actions. Every time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, talking about the Old Testament law or the works. Then he says, but I tell you, and he takes it to a deeper meaning. He takes it to a deeper meaning in our lives. He takes it to the heart. You've heard it said, but I tell you. He goes to a very transformation of the soul. And how do we know, says Paul, that this doesn't work? Because we tried it, says Paul. This is what Paul's telling Peter. We had the best system of rules the world has ever seen, says Paul. We are convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. We believe in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting Jesus and not by trying to be good. I like that summary because it's the very same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5 says this, verse 17, Do not think, this is Jesus talking, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. What's he leaving out of there? Jesus says, I'm coming to fulfill what you can't fulfill. I'm coming to do what you can't do. I'm coming to live up to this righteousness because you cannot earn this righteousness. He says, very truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, that's a problem, right? Until everything is accomplished, not one thing is going to disappear from that law. I don't know about you, but I didn't live according to the law this morning or yesterday or the day before, over the past 40 years. What have I done? I believed Jesus who fulfilled that law that's not going away. In other words, if Peter's right, if the Judaizers are right, then Jesus is a liar. And we have no hope for eternal life. Verses 17 and 18, but, in Galatians 2, but of seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And again, this is Jesus being called a liar by those who try to save themselves. If you have to be good to get into heaven, then Jesus is a liar. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. If a person, church, is convicted of a capital crime and they're executed, the law no longer has power over them, right? They're dead. Just like Christians, convicted, found guilty by the law, Christ pays the penalty 
we become crucified with Christ. The rule book no longer has power over us. But here's the point, and this is what we must get. This is the root of Paul's strength. This goes back to that very same thing. It's only until you find out. It's only until you realize. It's only until you embrace the fact that you're dead. What does Paul say, Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. You see, our problem is we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Are you? No, I'm not. I know I'm closer to that than I once was. Why do you think Paul's able to do what, he, what he's able to do? Why do you think he's able to go? Why do you think he's able to teach and preach? Why do you think he's able to risk? Why do you think he's able to teach truth and speak truth with his life on the line every single day? Because of this. He says, the fact of the matter is, I don't even live anymore. I'm already dead. The life I do live, the fact that I can still move and operate in this body, I live by faith in Jesus Christ. I live by faith for the one who gave himself up for me. Paul's going to talk about the pursuit of doing good, but the good is a fruit, not the root. The fruit of Christ living in the believer, not the cause. Verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be, could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Church, we're here for a reason. We're in church for a reason. We're in church to either learn about Jesus or praise Jesus and worship Jesus. But I guarantee you, if you think that you can earn your salvation, if you think that you have to earn your righteousness, if you think you have to earn this right standing before God, what does Paul say? Then Jesus Christ died for nothing. You're wasting your time here. There are better things. Am I getting in the way? Am I? Okay. All right. All right. I mean, we'll stop if you got something. All right. I don't, I don't know. It might be a business deal you need to close. I just... You know, we're just talking about Jesus here. <laughs> you're here for a reason. If you think you can save yourself, you're wasting your time here. But if you think Jesus found you, not good, but worthy to be loved, this is exactly what you can put your life on, hang your life on, and what you can have your hope and your peace your faith. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a trade. Forgiveness is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again that Jesus has forgiven us, that we are justified, Father, that we are made righteous before you by what Jesus does. Father, help us not to throw that away. Help us, in fact, to continue to gain that, to, to grow stronger in that belief in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you so much for a tremendous gift that I know I can be saved, that I know my family can be saved, that I, I, know, I know my friends can be saved, I know my son can be saved. I ask, Father, that you help everybody in this room, everyone in this room, maybe, maybe, maybe they're wondering about one part of this, that they will just simply accept the gift of love that Jesus has given to us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing.
Father, once again, we thank you for this gift, this gift of worship, this gift of, uh, of fellowship with one another, this gift of, of becoming certain that there's nothing we can do to earn your love. Well, we don't want to. We want this to be genuine love. And uh, that's what Jesus showed us. And that's an incredible expression. We thank you for that, Father. Help us, Father, as we leave this place to know that we are loved, to know that we are saved. So we can have that same peace that Jesus talks about. We can have that burden lifted. And that uh, we remain, we continue to remain an eternal thing.